You're listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life with Dan Simon. I was in absolute shock, complete disbelief. I was used to seeing doctors as all-seeing, all-knowing, and couldn't believe that someone who had all these wonderful frame certificates behind them didn't have a solution. To hear that the doctor didn't have an answer was a complete shock. And I walked out thinking that they must be wrong. This couldn't be. I was too young to have something described as incurable. Running down the hallway, looking behind me and just seeing this wall of fire coming and thinking, what is happening? Just that that four-month period bookended by my father's death and my grandfather's death, and then the fire in between was, it was surreal. You just can't, this is a very bad script that I'm living, right? You can't believe it. And so that was a problem I thought would be great fun to solve. And I launched one of the very first, I don't know, we were maybe first or second online matchmaking company in China. You have no idea. People said I was rubbishing my Harvard MBA. What a waste. What was I doing? This was pornographic. How could I do this? I was such a quote unquote nice girl. Why was I getting involved with this? And unwittingly, I ended up getting the moniker of the high priestess of sex. They, they didn't want to talk about online matchmaking. All they wanted to talk about was Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This is Personal Rewinding a Life. I'm your host, Dan Simon, and we're back after a fairly long COVID-19 hiatus, so thank you for your uh, patience and your indulgence. What if you had, at age 39, been given a medical diagnosis that you had a maximum of five years left to live? How would you handle that? Well, we're going to find out from our guest today, Leslie Kenny, exactly how she did handle that and a lot of other challenges in her life. From being a Swiss banker in Zurich that hit her head on the glass ceiling, from being a business development executive for Walt Disney Studios, where she was given the most ridiculous assignment ever of determining whether the internet had any future in the entertainment world. And of course, they thought it didn't. Then she started one of the first online dating platforms in China and India, and again was told that that was going to fail. After solving her own health challenges, she took it upon herself to start her own transformational health and wellness company, Oxford HealthSpan, which manufactures a product that addresses six of the nine pillars of aging. So if you want to become younger, you should definitely listen to this podcast. In every case, Leslie's story is one of perseverance, of enthusiasm, hard work, and figuring out how to solve very difficult problems. Enjoy today's podcast. Today we are with Leslie Kenny. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Lovely to be here. You know, I was reading your, your bio. It's, uh, I think that's probably a good place to start. Uh, 
you're a native Southern Californian that's moved to the Oxford bubble, an, <laughs> an entrepreneur, Berkeley and Harvard Business School graduate, whose life was turned upside down when she was diagnosed with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in her 30s. Uh, when her doctors told her lupus had a life expectancy of five years and that rheumatoid arthritis could only be managed, not cured, you set out to optimize your health as best you could using safe natural solutions. That is really fascinating because obviously you're a little bit beyond the five-year period. What were you thinking when you got that diagnosis back then? I was in absolute shock, complete disbelief. I was used to seeing doctors as all-seeing, all-knowing, and couldn't believe that someone who had all these wonderful frame certificates behind them didn't have a solution. Now, that's on me for thinking that doctors do have all the answers, but to hear that the doctor didn't have an answer was a complete shock. And I walked out thinking that they must be wrong. This couldn't be. I was too young to have something described as incurable and to have cytokines and TNF-alpha and uh, to have my blood work look like I was fighting cancer. That's how bad of an autoimmune response I had. So what did you do next? Well, because I was in denial, I decided that I would prove them wrong <laughs> and decided to look up all the research that I could find on autoimmune conditions. I just was looking for anybody who had been able to reverse their conditions and found a few people who had recovered from, say, cancer, uh, from a few people who had recovered from uh, autoimmune conditions. No one really seemed to understand what it was that they had did. They had really thrown the kitchen sink at it. So I thought, you know, I will throw the kitchen sink at it too. And the first place that I started was looking at the link between inflammation, run amok, and uh, an immune system run amok, and focusing on my lifestyle. So getting my diet, my sleep, my exercise, and my stress levels in check so that I could at least press those levers. Those were things that were within my control. And I went on Dr. Barry Sears's zone uh, anti, in, I think it was called the zone anti-inflammation diet and took out all the sugars from my diet, took out all the gluten from my diet, took out dairy, trying to think other things that I added in were uh, fish oil, which is anti-inflammatory, uh, turmeric, ginger, the usual suspects that are now part of mainstream media. At the same time, I learned about a, a new, a relatively new therapy at the time. It was called intravenous immunoglobulin, and it's where you take plasma from lots of different donors and you uh, 
take that as a way to calm down your own immune system. So I was not sure whether two of those IVIG treatments, they were about 12,000 US dollars, but my insurance happily covered them. Uh, I had a lot of- Maybe GP, not happily. Well, not happily. <laughs> happily for me, not happily for them. Yeah. However, uh, with a lot of doctor friends in the UK telling me, this is going to be a very dangerous thing. Don't do this because there might be things like hepatitis C, HIV, you don't know. We don't know what we have yet to discover because we knew that earlier blood transfusions had actually transmitted things like HIV and hepatitis C. So these friends who were GPs were quite worried that I would get something that we had yet to discover. My feeling was that I had nothing to lose. If I had a, a sort of estimate of five years to go, then why not try this? Because there was no other answer. So I did do it. And uh, I actually think it was a very good deal for the insurance company because between that and the change in my diet and lifestyle, I have no idea which one worked, but I was able to forego the rheumatoid arthritis drugs that I was given, Humira, Enbrel, I was on so many different ones. And those cost about 5,000 US dollars a month. I've already calculated that had I decided to go on those drugs, I would have, or the insurance company would have had to have paid close to a million US dollars just for those. So it was probably a good trade-off for them, 24,000 US dollars versus a million dollars. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, and I don't know that the insurance uh, in the US has changed much in terms of being, being uh, ahead of the curve to do what's actually makes common sense, but good job getting that to happen for you. Yeah, thank you. And since then, some good research on intravenous immunoglobulin and the impact on autoimmune conditions has come out in scientific journals. So for those who are looking for solutions, it's certainly worth discussing with one's healthcare practitioner to see if it is a valid option for you. So Leslie, what was the, the, time period from when you got the initial diagnosis till you uh, till you went through uh, all the things you've just described until you felt like you were over the over the hump and you weren't worried about the the, the initial diagnosis they gave you five year life expectancy because obviously we're long 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 past that yeah. well this is the remarkable thing is that and just goes to show how quickly the human body can respond to the right conditions when you give it the chance. Within six months, I had completely reversed all of the markers of inflammation. So my CRP had dropped below one. Uh, my TNF-alpha, my tumor necrosis factor alpha, my cytokines had all dropped as well. And it, it, it was remarkable. I was thrilled that this was this was something that I was able to do. I mean, it's incredibly empowering to know that you as a patient 
can actually improve your health in a very meaningful way when even a medical expert says, oh, there's nothing we can do. So I would urge anyone who has a diagnosis of any kind to think about the things that are within your power. And it can be small things like optimizing sleep. That's free, right? Avoid blue yes. light, go to bed earlier, maybe make the room a bit colder, things like this, just to see if it has a meaningful impact on your health. Sleep, of course, is so important to, uh, to repairing the body, restoring your energy reserves, to overall regeneration, especially as we get older. So that's one simple thing that we can do, but it's very, very empowering to know that. And once you once you see you can move the needle, you then can't stop. You want to try lots of other things. And it could be diet, it could be exercise, it could be meditation or other stress reduction methods. These are all things that we have within our control to meaningfully improve our health and reverse illness. And later on in the podcast, I think we're going to get into much more detail in terms of some of the things you've uh, what you're involved with with Oxford HealthSpan and Spermidine, and uh, as you as your tag on your Facebook page says that you're all about healthcare, patient empowerment, and community. And I want to get into all that in in more detail uh, a little bit later on. But uh, let's take a step back because uh, you know what you've just described is is very unusual in terms of most people that got, if they'd received the diagnosis you received, would have just kind of followed the doctor's instructions and then probably not been around much longer. Um, you know, most people are not, and you know, when you got the diagnosis, it wasn't you know, today's world that where biohacking is uh, more mm. of a mainstream kind of thing. It wasn't like that at all, you know, 20 plus years ago. And um, so I want to find out a little bit about your history, your upbringing, how you got to be the kind of person that would say, oh, I'm going to figure this out myself because it's not, uh, it's a great example for people to, to see that, hey, they can empower themselves versus giving your power over to, you know, an institution, to the medical institution or the government or to whatever institution and let them make the decisions. And that's obviously what not what you did and that, how you approach it. So tell us a little bit about your uh, your upbringing in Southern California and how you uh, got to be the, uh, the the young woman in the early 30s that got that diagnosis. Well, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be the person I am if I um, if I hadn't had a very strong grandmother in my life who very much had the pioneering spirit. I. Uh, she was i was born actually in indianapolis and my uh, my grandparents were very much uh, hoosiers of many generations and i think that for for them indiana uh you know 150 years ago was living on the frontier and they remembered going to school in one room you know single room schoolhouses they uh I had, you know, grandparents who had literally cut down trees and, uh, you know, found ways to farm in very inhospitable 
conditions. So they were pioneers. And I think that pioneering can-do spirit that I inherited from my grandparents really helped me when I had to try and problem solve my health. And at the same time, on my mother's side, my mother's from Taiwan, and my grandfather, my Chinese grandfather, who had done his medical, both of my, my Chinese grandparents had done their medical degrees in Japan. They're from Taiwan, which used to be a colony of Japan. And oh, I didn't know that. Uh, you didn't know that, right? No. So uh, my grandfather, however, went back to China to after the Second World War to help build hospitals in the new China. And he got caught in mainland China when the Iron Curtain closed, came down. And he had been Japanese medicine at the time he studied it was very much German medicine which was at the forefront in the 20s when he studied, when he and my grandmother studied medicine. And he was used to looking for the latest technologies and uh, the latest chemistry to help his patients. But when he got to China, it was incredibly poor. And after the Great Leap Forward and famine, there was no money to buy antibiotics, but he was a surgeon and there was no money for anesthesia. So he was forced to look at traditional Chinese medicine. He was forced to look at acupuncture as a method to induce uh, uh, basically anesthesia so that he could perform surgery on individuals. And it was not something that he wanted to do, but he was forced to do it out of necessity. And he discovered that it worked. Lo and behold, it actually worked. And there were many things that he was able to do going into the traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia uh, and then melding that with the things he knew from his Western medical education. And these were things that he, these were tools, these were new tools that he was able to bring together to uh, help his patients in this, you know, in, in communist China. So it, that, like, that also helped with, uh, with my thinking, well, there's got to be another way or maybe things these guys don't know about. So let's, let's look outside the box. And that's very interesting because all this occurred, this is all before you were born as well. So you must have had um, interesting discussions or downloads of, of history of all this, all this stuff that happened in your family, which is, again, sometimes can be kind of rare. But how was that all imparted to you uh, when you were born, when you started growing up? To, how did you learn about all of that? Directly from them? Yeah, well, in, in particular from... I suppose from my, my mother was very interested in food and in Asia, food is medicine. The different herbs are considered medicinal. Garlic has antibacterial properties. Uh, there are things like natto, which she loved, which also have health giving properties. So there were certain foods that she would instruct me to eat. For example, as a young woman, when I would get my, my monthly cycle, she would say, oh, you need to have now some red meat because you need to replenish the blood that you've just lost. 
very basic things like that, which I completely took for granted, but which make a lot of sense when I look back on this now. On the American side, uh, of course, I spent a huge amount of time with my American grandparents. And that was really just their attitude. When a problem came up, they were a little bit like Marie Forleo. They would, they would have that attitude. Everything is outable. We can right. definitely find a way. This, this appears to be a problem in this moment, but we are going to find a way out of it. And I remember my uncle had a problem with the car he had bought and it had to keep taking it to the garage. And my grandmother called up the president of the Ford Motor Company because <laughs> that's what she did. You know, this was unacceptable service from the Ford garage and she wasn't going to be satisfied until she spoke to the president of the company. <laughs> And to his credit, he made it right. So that gave me the impression that, yeah, you know, if you want to fix something, one, you can do it. Two, you need to go to the top and don't muck around with, uh, don't muck around with someone who doesn't have the power to help. Go to somebody who is in a position to help you and uh, then state your case. So all of these things, look outside the box, can do attitude, we're going to figure it out, were things that I grew up with. A lot of them are very American attitudes, I would say, especially that I'm sure we can figure this out. That, for me, is something wonderful about the American spirit. Yeah, and it's, it's really fascinating that you had these different influences from your uh, Taiwanese grandparents and your American grandparents, but they were both very positive and very, um, you know, as you said, take charge, can do, figure it out, and solve the problem no matter which, no matter how difficult it is. Just uh, keep moving forward. It's uh, it's the uh, it's the opposite of entitlement and the uh, you know the uh, the way of uh, of making constant improvement. Yes, to have that attitude, and uh, uh, it's just fascinating to see that uh, you had that impact on you and how you carried that through. So let me let me ask you this then: in terms of uh, growing up, your adolescence and high school and college, uh, what kind of experiences? How was your life in Southern California uh, up until you decided uh, what your career was going to be? How were how were you doing there? Well. Uh, my parents, like uh, many, but half of all Americans that get married, get divorced. So my parents divorced and they decided that I would spend one year with one parent. My dad was in Northern California and another year, the next year I would switch schools. So every year I switched schools. Wow. So one year in Northern California, the next year in Southern California, Obviously, looking back, that was a completely bonkers idea. Why would they do that? <laughs> but uh, I did that, and uh, I lived with my dad on my own. Uh, unfortunately, he was an alcoholic, and that meant that didn't make things quite difficult. I was absolutely his caregiver. Uh, I cleaned the house. I did the clothes. I got the laundry. I 
fed the dog. I made the lunches for us. I cooked the meals and I did my schoolwork. Uh, I became extremely independent as a result of that and would say that uh, it was not a pleasant experience. And he did die when he was age 39, the same age that I was when I was diagnosed. Mm. But uh, it did definitely instill uh, independence uh, in me. What other effect did that have on you, Leslie, losing your father so early? A sense of mortality, really. A deep sense of mortality. Because within, he died on the very, it was a leap year, and he died on the last day of February, or the day, right, the, the day before. And uh, I guess that would be the 28th. And within less than four months, my grandfather had also died of a massive heart attack. So he'd never had he'd never had a stroke before. Um, just to be honest, I think he died of a broken heart. Uh, I'll never forget uh, at the funeral for my father, watching my grandfather break down over, you know, the, the casket is open. My father is lying there. You're paying your last respects. And my grandfather just broke down over my father's dead body, just crying, weeping. This was the second son that he had lost. And I think it was... Wow. I think it was just a terrible, terrible shock to the system. And as a parent, if you, you know, you've got kids, if something, can there be a greater loss than that of a child? It's a terrible thing to go through. And so, yes, he, I would say he died of a broken heart, but two deaths within a very small family. I have no siblings. I had no cousins. I was the only grandchild. And uh, my, my uh, Chinese grandparents were, at that point, grandmother had passed away, grandfather. We actually didn't even know where he was at that point because of the Iron Curtain. We assumed he was dead. So my small family of two grandparents, a mother and father and one uncle, suddenly we had lost two members of that small microcosm within less than four months. And well, I just thought this is going to be different for me. I have to make it different. It was as simple as that. And you were, you were, when your father passed away at 39, you were how old? You were in college at the time? or No, no, I was, I just turned, was it before my, it was right before my 14th birthday. Mm. So my grandfather died a week before my 14th birthday. My dad died a, a few months before him. So how did that affect you going on? How did you recover from that, those, those twin uh, tragedies and uh, go through the rest of your adolescence. What happened uh, to you then? I, well, I certainly didn't think about it at the time. Right. When when things like this happen, you you react in the moment. You have to deal with them. And uh, I lived after my dad died. I lived with a, a lovely Czech family that took me in because, of course, my mother was in Southern California. I was in the San Joaquin Valley. I wanted to finish up the school year and stayed with this 
family that had left the uh, left Czechoslovakia uh, after the Prague Spring or during the Prague Spring, and they took me in. And while I was with them, their house burned down, and I remember Inga, the uh, the wife opening my door, shaking me at around 1 a.m. saying, the house is on fire, get out, get out now. <laughs> Running down the hallway, looking behind me and just seeing this wall of fire coming and thinking, what is happening? Just that, that four-month period bookended by my father's death and my grandfather's death. And then the fire in between was, it was surreal. You just can't, this is a very bad script that I'm living, right? You can't believe it. And so you, you just have to go with it. You have to adapt as best you can. Yeah, that's it's ridiculous, almost, right? That's almost, it's almost unbelievable. Yes, it's almost mind-boggling, but I guess everything does happen for a reason, and uh, it certainly has informed who you are today based on all these things that have, uh, have occurred. Um, yeah, you have to keep going. I think that that's, that's got to be my motto is just keep going. Yeah, that blend of, that blend of uh, the influences you had, um, the positive influences you had from your grandparents and uh, what that informed you with versus the tragedies that occurred that you had, a, you had to endure. Is very interesting. So, uh, going forward, uh, let's talk a little bit about your life uh, growing up in your twenties and your thirties. Before you became, you had the diagnosis, and you became the uh, uh, the biohacker of your own biology <laughs> and, and started helping other people. What you did a lot of very interesting things in the in the corporate world. Why don't you tell audience a little bit about? Uh, 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 what you did for your initial career? Well, I, uh, I started my career in banking in Switzerland, and I got to Switzerland because uh, in college, my grandmother died. So it really just left my uncle and my mother and myself. And I was extremely tight with my grandmother and her dream had always been to go to Europe. I mean, you can just imagine this wonderful, wonderful older American woman and her whole dream was to go to Paris. So I decided after she died and I finished university that instead of starting a stable job, getting a car and a mortgage, that I was going to do all the things that she had wanted to do, but never got the chance to do. So that meant going off to Europe. Uh, I traveled throughout Europe, and the place that I liked the best was actually Switzerland, and studied there for a couple of years at the University of Zurich, and then got a job at the third largest bank in Switzerland at the time, which was called Swiss Bank Corporation, and loved, absolutely loved my life there. It was a very balanced way of living. People had great work-life balance. It was all very civilized and quite different from how my classmates at Berkeley were working either on Wall Street or uh, doing residencies, uh, say in Irvine or in San Francisco. 
my life was much more balanced than there was, than theirs was. And I, I greatly appreciated that. Uh, of course, there are certain ethical issues around working for a Swiss bank. And uh, I was quite happy to work for uh, for the bank that, that had the, the least mud attached to its name. But banking was not really, especially Swiss banking at the time, was not a place for women. There were a very small number of women in management. And I think that having an American accent when I spoke German, or I spoke Swiss German, by the way, I, have, I speak Swiss German and not German. Okay. Um, and there's a big difference between the two. Um, it's sort of like having a, Tex a, a Texan accent in German. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So when I, when I spoke German, I had a, a strong American accent. And I think I got away with a lot more things because I just didn't know what the protocol was. There are a lot of rules in German. You have to use the formal V with a lot of people and and you can't use the informal do with individuals until they mention it. Usually it's the more senior person who says you can, you know, do see me. Um, but coming from the States, especially coming from a very laid back place like Orange County, which is where I, I then finished high school, I didn't know the rules and I did break them a lot unwittingly, but I think it helped. And I think that's what allowed me, honestly, to uh, to get promoted into management when so many other women were not. Ultimately, though, because there were so few women in senior management, it was obvious to me I would have to leave. And it was also not very meaningful, to be very honest. It was just too far away from people. And I'm very much a people person. Everybody's got a story. I want to hear everybody's story. That's what's fun and interesting to me. And I was nowhere near that. So I decided to apply to business school. I had been posted then to London and then to Hong Kong and applied to business school, was planning on going back to Europe for it and applying to INSEAD, which is uh, in Fontainebleau, just outside of Paris. And somebody in my SAT, in my, sorry, it was GMAT prep class said, oh, well, if you're going to apply to INSEAD, you should apply to Harvard as well, because that, uh, their application is exactly the same. So it's a good, it's a good trial run. So I did do that and sent in the application, but never thought anything serious would come of it and was rather shocked when I got the acceptance letter. Um, because they answered in March and she had uh, answered in May at the time. So I got in both places, but, but decided I would, I would see what it was like to have an East Coast experience. And you traded Paris for, for Boston. Yeah, I traded Paris for Boston. I, was that a wise decision? I'm not sure my grandmother would have done that, although she loved Cape Cod. I think that she might have chosen Paris. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. And I, yeah, I had two, I had two years there. And after that, I took a job with uh, the Walt Disney Company, which was really the hometown company in Southern California. Disney really dominates. And of course, if you come from Orange County, 
you have the Matterhorn on the skyline. And I was used to seeing the fireworks that went off twice a night. I was used to seeing them when I did my homework in high school. So uh, very much part of uh, my psyche growing up. And I love the fact that Disney told great stories. Yeah. So you heard me say a few minutes ago that everybody has a story. Everybody's story is valid and worth listening to and honoring. And Disney does a great job of telling stories. And I really wanted to go there to help them tell stories that had not yet been heard. Uh, whether that was stories that came from communities that were less represented in entertainment and media, or whether that was just stories they hadn't had a light shun on them before. I wanted those stories to get told. So I went to work for Disney with a very idealistic attitude. And while I was there, I, I, went, back, I went actually to Hong Kong uh, with Disney. And while I was there, they said, well, we're gonna have to put you on a, on a project that you're not gonna like, because there's no money that comes in with it. And, but you are the, you're the last person in, therefore you're going to have to do this. I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, I was doing business development for Walt Disney Studios. And they, I said, what is it? And they said, it's this, this new business area called the internet. And it's absolutely terrible because nobody's making any money on this. And there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in it, but really we don't see it ever taking over TV or films and or home video. So it's just not gonna happen. <laughs> but if you just look at it for us, that would make us happy. So I looked at it and I looked at the projections on distribution of video over broadband and broadband rollout around uh, Asia Pacific, which was leading at the time because uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, very small, very small footprints. So rolling out to big buildings with hundreds of people is extremely easy. Right. And uh, both Singapore and Hong Kong had the, the first you know, what we call global rollout of um, of video distribution over the internet. And that, uh, I could see the writing on the wall. I could just see the studios getting disintermediated and uh, having a lot of long tail content being pulled by consumers. And uh, rather than having to just make content for the lowest common denominator suddenly you know you would be able to do niche content and what i decided to then do was go into a totally new industry because i thought the internet is fascinating because it has attributes that no other no other distribution channel has it has and the the biggest attribute was that it was anonymous and people would be able to interact with one another again telling their stories but anonymously 
and they could make friends that way. And I saw what was happening with online matchmaking in the United States and thought, I think that this is the right place to go. Because, it, for example, in both China and India at the time, you had huge numbers of young people going from this from the countryside to the big cities in India the young people were going to Bangalore and working all hours and they had no time to meet uh, meet potential partners at the same time uh, because they were so far away the traditional system of matchmaking didn't work because there was nobody to show right the person that you needed to match was far away in Bangalore whereas the girl might be in Pune so a similar thing was happening in China. And so that was a problem I thought would be great fun to solve. And I launched one of the very first, I don't know, we were maybe first or second online matchmaking company in China. And if I, we if were, I can interrupt for, for one second, yeah, Leslie, go I, ahead. I, I bet you that a lot of people told you that online dating was not going to work either. That was a whole bad idea over oh, there. You that have as well. no you have no idea people said i was rubbishing my harvard mba what a waste what was i doing this was pornographic how could i do this i was such a quote-unquote nice girl why was i getting involved with this and and to be honest it was very hard in the beginning we could not get a payment provider to partner with us because of the taint the perceived taint that uh, that this was pornographic in some way. And I, uh, you know, we just tried and tried and tried. And we eventually got a company called WorldPay to, you know, to be our payment provider, which was fantastic. They were out of Scotland and they were later acquired, I think, by Royal Bank of Scotland. But that was, that was lucky. Again, we just had to find a way. We tried so many. And everyone turned us down but it's a bit like jk rowling right you know she had how many rejections 80 rejections before bloomsbury said oh right harry potter this actually is a good story let's publish that yeah <laughs> right so you do need to have a thick skin you do need to anticipate a lot of rejection a lot of failure before you get success and that was just a tiny challenge that we had so, uh, so I did. I did the online matchmaking, and so you left. You had you left. You'd resigned from Disney to start yes. the online ma uh, matchmaking. In, I did. In I did. I did, and it seemed very funny to go from, you know, having a business card that had Mickey Mouse on it to doing something really new and different. But it was it, it was absolutely the right thing to do, and. At I wanted at the, yeah, time, the time. Was that a was that a difficult decision, though? I was young and full of optimism, and so I think that when you're young and you you're full of optimism, it's never the wrong decision, right? You uh, you know you only see the upside, you don't see the downside, yeah. and it seemed like such an obvious idea to me at the time that online matchmaking this just had to be how people would find each other in the future, especially with more people spending time in offices, with the rollout of the internet, with the rollout of broadband, the opportunity to do Zoom calls and meet each other that way. 
seemed much more meaningful than going into a, a dark bar where you can barely see someone and your decisions might be slightly clouded by the, you know, the glass of tequila next to you. <laughs> so um, seemed very obvious to me. But we we encountered other challenges, not just finding a payment provider or getting flack from people who thought we were promoting promiscuity. In China, the government was, as we know, the government has always been very strong. And they they did indeed take the view that we were promoting promiscuity. And I went to, I flew to Beijing and I met with the head of the China Family Planning Association. And China at the time was just beginning to open up. Uh, they, they really opened in, in 1979, Deng Xiaoping is rehabilitated. By 1999, 20 years later, they were in full-fledged, we're going to become capitalist with Chinese characteristics mode. And they, they really wanted to learn from the West. So instead of saying out of hand, you're absolutely not going to do online matchmaking, they said, what can you do for us? And I said, well, I could, I could teach some sex education. Would that be helpful? Because there's HIV, which isn't a problem. And there are unwanted pregnancies. That's one of your, your policy goals as a government. You don't want unwanted pregnancies. You don't want extra pregnancies. What if we do some sidebar content on our website about safe sex? Would that, and good relationships, would that help? Would you consider that hmm. and then not take our server? Because if you want to have your content served in China, there are only four gateways in. The government controls every single one. You need to have your server inside the People's Republic in order to get it served to anyone in China. And so I knew that they would just they would just come. And, uh, and take my server if I didn't get their approval. And they liked that idea. And I said, well, look, if you're going to do information on good sex, on safe sex, you aren't gonna get anybody to read it because that unfortunately is going to be the same as boring sex. So we had better have content on great sex. So safe sex and great sex, and that will be the honey to get the bees in to both the content that you want to put out on safe sex, as well as to get them into the online matchmaking platform. So we had so much content and we offered free Q and A's with experts, with sex experts in India and in Hong Kong and in China. And unwittingly, I ended up getting the moniker of the high priestess of sex in China. Wow. <laughs> I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, but anytime I went on TV or onto a radio show or was interviewed by say Marie Claire or, you know, newspaper, they, they didn't want to talk about online matchmaking. All they wanted to talk about was sex. sex. And what are, what are, what's the number one question people are asking? So, it just, it, it kind of happened. I didn't mean for it to happen, but I did develop very good relationships with some 
really outstanding sexologist, including Erwin Haverly at the Robert Koch Institute in Berlin. And uh, he wanted me to go to his institute to do a PhD in sexology. I said, I don't think this is really what I want to do. But I had helped him with the translation of a huge amount of his repository of of a good and safe sex into Chinese, uh, simplified and complex Chinese, and did ended up doing an associate degree in sexology at the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality in San Francisco. So, so you are the high priestess of sex. I should put well, that as the title of the podcast. <laughs> I don't know about that. I am. I am a mom too. That was, you know, that was at that moment in time. It, that's what what I was called. It was. I think it was the Corriere della Sera, the Italian daily newspaper, uh, that that said that. And I think it was the Herald Tribune that said the Doctor Ruth of China. And it's kind of fun, you know. I think that when I'm when I'm when I'm a hundred, will it be fun to have said I was a high priest of sex? High priestess of sex in China, yeah, that will be fine. <laughs> so how did that all play out in terms of the online dating? How long were you in the business and when did you uh, switch okay. from that? I, I did that from 1999 until 2003. And at that point, my we, we had gone through the SARS crisis in Hong Kong. And... It really was a strange time. I suppose it was a harbinger of what we are going through right now with COVID. I was not used to seeing these very portly British bankers in their pinstripe suits uh, with their very elegant gray hair behind them wearing face masks. That was so strange to me and just thought, it was time to leave Hong Kong. So my husband got a posting to Boulder, Colorado, which was fantastic. And, uh, you know, basically said, we need to start a family now. We have been trying and we've been unsuccessful and you are working all hours of the night. You need to stop. And otherwise we're just not going to have a family. So with, with great regret, I sold the, I sold the, uh, you know, the, the, the database and the software to a Japanese company that wanted to get into, they had their own database that, that they had been using for email marketing, and they wanted to get into this business. And we had always had a bit of a loss on the online matchmaking because credit cards weren't available really at that time in China or India. And within two weeks of the Japanese company launching, they were cash flow positive. It was just, it was the perfect timing. And of course, the Japanese had credit cards. So, um, so quite, quite interesting. But I had to leave, you know, I had to leave all of that behind and really focus on starting a family and you can't do that unless you are healthy and that's when it became clear that the wheels had fallen off my health in a very dramatic way 
But this is before your diagnosis of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, correct? Yes, yes, uh, because uh, what every woman dreads hearing from a doctor, especially a man in a white jacket who is their gynecologist, is when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but you're infertile. But that is what the doctor said to me. And that is, for any woman that is, that's like being slapped with a cold fish, like, oh my God, this yeah. is horrible. It's such an affront. It's an affront to your femininity. And not that I had, not that I had thought my femininity was necessarily attached to having children. It was that I always thought that the option was there. So for them to say there is no option, to take that out of my control or to, you know, for me to feel like, oh, I had zero control over my reproductive health because I my my reproductive health was frankly, uh, you know, was frankly terrible, was uh, was a shock. And we did probably five rounds of IVF, three rounds of IUI, donor eggs. Uh, I can't tell you how much acupuncture and herbs I did. I tried everything. And I just could not get pregnant. And I decided, well, I don't think I can live with this uncertainty. Again, the need to sort of take control back. I decided you know, to, to be a mother, mother is not just a noun, it's a verb, right? Mm -hmm. And I could be a mother to a child that didn't have a mother. So I convinced my husband that we should adopt. And because I have a Taiwanese passport, the Chinese government recognizes me as being a Chinese citizen. And so it meant that we got to Q jump because they wanted any of these, you know, quote unquote, unwanted orphan girls to go to ethnically Chinese families. So, uh, you know, put the paperwork in and within a year we're matched with our lovely daughter, Charlotte. And that was, that was a good story, but it did not actually improve my health. It improved my mental health, knowing that there was a baby, but it did not improve my physical health. And uh, the symptoms got worse and worse. Uh, my hands began to ache. I couldn't type. I couldn't turn doorknobs. I could still turn faucets. I could still open drawers, but I couldn't use scissors. Chopping things was difficult. And I realized that something was very wrong. I should be able to open a jar of pickles, right? Yeah. So you, that's you when in I Boulder, went to, You were in Boulder at the time? Yes, I was in Boulder. Lived okay. right in the heart of the historic district on Mapleton. Yeah, great city. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful town. So that's when the, when the doctor ran those tests. And came back and said, uh, you know, I had this dual diagnosis of 
lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and a bit like what had happened when I was 14, you know, between my dad and my grandfather dying in the fire in between. Uh, it was, it felt really surreal because I'd just gone through, we, we'd, we'd gone through SARS. We thought we had quote unquote escaped, gone to this beautiful city, clean place in Boulder in the Rockies, and then told I'm infertile. And then to be given this dual diagnosis of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis was such a shock. But of course, it was all the same piece of cloth. The reason I was infertile uh, had to do with some of the other imbalances in my body that were contributing to the lupus and the rheumatoid arthritis. So that's what, what forced me to take a very deep look at my health. Uh, mortality does that, right? Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, that's right. So tell us about that journey. We talked about it earlier in the podcast of all the different things you did. Hmm. Uh, how did we? How did you uh, get? And you said it was only about six months till you saw some market improvements. Yes. But how did you transition from your own healing journey to saying this is this is the area I want to be in to help other people uh, to take charge of their health care and to uh, really be at the leading edge, the cutting edge of what's, what uh, medical science knows and not be at the trailing end of what uh, the medical system in the, in the U.S. in particular is, uh, is offering to most people. That was, that was another 10-year journey, to be really honest, because once we adopted Charlotte, I wanted to focus on her. I really wanted to be present. And I was a typical latchkey child. I'm sure there are many people listening who were also latchkey children, right? My babysitter was Gilligan's Island. And yeah. I didn't want that for her. I wanted to be very engaged in her life. And I suppose also with your first child, that's also what you do, right? Sure. So I focused very much on her and noticed that I didn't have very much energy and couldn't figure out why all the other mothers were just able to run Cub Scout groups and had uh, allotments for their gardens and were perfect homemakers and even had part-time jobs and three kids. And I thought, my God, I'm exhausted. And I only have one. <laughs> and I didn't even have to go through the physical strain of childbirth. And I'm really tired. And I, I then discovered that I was hypothyroid and had to very much buck the medical trend here in Britain in order to get that treated. The protocol, the, there's only one protocol in the UK that is diagnosis based on TS, elevated TSH level and treatment with levothyroxine, getting T3 getting diagnosis based on, say, reverse T3 levels or antibodies, thyroid antibodies, that's really not typical. It is not standard practice here. So it took me a while. I got that diagnosis uh, through, through a doctor who had relinquished his 
license in the UK so that he could tell patients without fear of being kicked out of the medical profession in the UK. And he honestly saved my life because if you don't have a functioning thyroid, if the thyroid governs the heart and it's the, it's, you know, cardiovascular conditions for thyroid patients, it's a very big issue, but also it governs circulation and with restored circulation to the uterus and the ability to allow a fertilized egg to implant and get nutrients, I was able to conceive naturally my second daughter. And that happened absolutely naturally, which was uh, a great surprise and shock, Wow! but a good one, right? And again, I spent uh, many years taking care of her and really enjoying motherhood. I, I love that. I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity, very grateful to my husband for being the breadwinner during that time so that I could really be there for the girls. But as they got older and I thought about going back into the world of work, I didn't want to go back to a corporate job. It would have been harder anyway as an, as an older woman in my 40s. I really wanted to do something that was meaningful to me. And having had so many health problems and having watched so many family members have terrible health problems, I decided that that was where I wanted to focus my interest. And it did mean retraining. I didn't want to become a doctor uh, because it would just take too long. So I, or a naturopath. So I decided that I would start with health coaching. And I happened to see Dave Asprey speak at a David Wolf conference in Anaheim in 2015. And I heard him speak. I heard a woman in Canada named Nadine Artemis speak as well. And they were so inspiring with their vision uh, of empowerment and the body's ability to heal naturally, which I had lived, that I thought, this is the path. I think I need to go out and just share the message that the body is this beautiful, complex system. And if we just do a few basic things to support it, it knows intuitively what to do. We have an internal pharmacopoeia inside of us to make the right amount of hormones, to make uh, lots of neurotransmitters, why when we're young and we skin our knee, the, the skin repairs? How does it know to do that? Well, again, if we help it along by getting the right sleep, by get, getting the right nutrients into our bodies, we allow the body to do what it knows how to do best, which is return to homeostasis or balance. And that was the message I wanted to get through to people as a survivor, as someone who had, my case is certainly not that bad. Unfortunately, autoimmunity is very common 
chronic right. conditions in the United States. The U.S. spends 3.8 trillion U.S. dollars on healthcare. That's what they spent in 2019, and 85% of that amount is for chronic healthcare conditions. That means that my situation was not unique. So I wanted yeah. other people to know they could change. And it's 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 so fascinating the that you saw Dave Asprey. You've done all these things for yourself, but and I've also followed Dave Asprey for a few years and there's so much information in his if you listen to his podcast on Bulletproof Radio mm. is uh, so in, enlightening and I really until I had discovered Dave Asprey I had no idea that all these things were uh, were possible or were going on in terms of uh, biohacking your own your mm. own biology yeah and, and you know coupled with that this idea of how corrupted the food supply is here how you know all the seed oils and all the things that the big uh, big ag puts into these uh, cardboard boxes uh, yeah. uh, what it's what it's done to you know what the standard american diet has done to the entire country is uh, is just really unbelievable the the depth of uh, the depth of uh, what that's done to you know people that were didn't have all the creature comforts a few hundred years ago and but we we did have pretty much healthy food and not a not a corrupted food supply with pesticides and with seed oils and all kinds of things that are completely unnatural and yeah so it's it's just amazing to see how many people uh, are now coming around to saying, hey, what else can we do? How do we get away from that? And of course, there's still many, many more people that are just following along with the herd and, uh, and buying whatever's most convenient. But uh, it's it's a worthy uh, goal to, to actually influence other people by the example of your life, Leslie, and then you know, taking that example and what you've done and then transmitting it through with the business you've created. And, you know, that's what I really want to hear more about because after you met Dave Asprey and you, I think you get uh, certified as a health coach with uh, Dave Asprey's uh, uh, organization as well. So how did things progress until where you are now from uh, 2015? Right. So I certified as a bulletproof coach. So he's, they're not health coaches, but they're, they're bulletproof coaches and sort of a, it's a wonderful holistic way of looking at the body, mind, um, and optimizing everything, including things like productivity. So I did that. And then I, I was also certified through Joshua Rosenthal's Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York City and became an ICF certified coach, again, through Dave Asprey's uh, Human Potential Institute, and started coaching. And I was astonished by the stories of my clients who were suffering from all sorts of issues. And again, realized that the problem, it was not just me, very successful people were suffering from other chronic conditions. And I very much wanted to find a way to help with this 
that was not just one client at a time. And uh, I also, at the same time, had been introduced to some wonderful scientists here in Oxford at the University of Oxford. And they would tell me about wonderful research they were doing. I'd say, that's great. How do I get that? I want that product. And they'd say, oh, it's not a product. It's, um, you know, it's just research. You have to be a, a research mouse to get that. <laughs> and I thought, right, oh, the, the mice, they have all the fun, just like back at Disney, right? Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, I thought, what a shame that this isn't being commercialized. There are a great number of things that are commercialized from the University of Oxford, but there were a lot of interesting were not commercialized because they were natural and they weren't capable of being patented. Uh, or in the case of the molecule that I really became interested in, spermidine, there had been a patent in, issued in 2014, uh, which was for potentiating vaccines in the elderly, but because the patent was applied for and it was not maintained, it became what's known as prior art. And so under patent law, you can't go back and say, oh, I want that patent back. You've let it lapse. It also means that nobody else can patent that either. So here was this great molecule. It had once been patented, but because nobody, you know, at the time, the University of Oxford put the burden on the researcher to come up with the money to maintain the patent. And there just wasn't. And as a result, it lapsed. And I thought, such a shame because this could be, this could be a really interesting thing. This was well before COVID. And I looked at, at spermidine. Spermidine is a, it's known as a polyamine, so multiple amines. It, it is in all cells, all tissues, all organs. It is in plants. It is in mammals. It is that important. And it is famously in seminal fluid because it's very small. And DNA, which normally wraps around a histone, can wrap very, very tightly around spermidine. That allows the sperm to be very small and to have a, a, a smaller load, a smaller payload, DNA payload, as it were. No pun so intended. They can swim faster. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Oh my goodness, man. Where's your mind? I didn't even think of that. I was thinking of rocket ships, but I probably also was the wrong thing to So, um, So, in any event, it's in, it is in seminal fluid. It is that important. It is also in human breast milk because it allows for the lining of the infant gut to, uh, to become stronger. It's only one cell thick. There are these junctions between the cells that need to be tightened up. And spermidine does that. And that's why it's in human breast milk. So, or at least one of the reasons, I'm sure there are other reasons, but that's, that really piqued my curiosity. And the more research that I looked at, 
the more intrigued that I became because when we think about populations around the world, the single common denominator in the developed nations is that our populations are aging. And what comes with an aging population are all of these, all of these bills, right? To deal with the aches and pains of aging. And when I looked at spermidine, I was fascinated to learn that it inhibits six of the nine hallmarks of aging. So when we think of aging, in order to age, some of us, all of us, of course, you know, I was born in 1965. We have a chronological age, but we also have a biological age. I'm sure that your biological age is probably 40 because of all the stuff that you do, Dan. You're an amazing biohacker. Well, um, I'm going to get my, uh, my uh, epigenetic report back shortly, so we'll see oh, about that. Oh, I want to talk to you about that. But, but this is the thing is that people don't realize that you – can be chronologically 70, but biologically you could be 80, right? There are so many things that you can do though to get your biological age lower. You and I know that this is possible through biohacking, but these nine hallmarks, if we can press those nine levers, we have a good chance of reversing our biological age. And spermidine hits six of those levers spermidine also comes together very often not always with another polyamine called spermine and spermine inhibits a seventh lever which is altered nutrient sensing so uh you know you have that, the other you have the other six uh levers uh off the yes, top of your head yes i do i do um the first one is epigenetic changes the second one is impaired proteostasis, which is proper protein folding and function, right. including autophagy within the cell. Um, and those proteins in the cell are important because they act as transporters in the cell and they help maintain cellular homeostasis. The third thing is mitochondrial dysfunction. The fourth thing is stem cell dysfunction. We all know about stem cells and their ability to repair, right? We don't want dysfunctional stem cells as we get older. The fifth thing is impaired intercellular communication. And the sixth lever is telomere shortening. So then spermine has this other hallmark, which is altered nutrient sensing. So, you know, you are, you are hitting the vast majority of levers that lead to aging. And I don't know, I'm sure you don't want to age. I don't want to age. I want to, I feel young. I know you feel young. Absolutely. If we can just stay in this place right now until we're 120, perfect, right? So that's why I really wanted to do what I could to bring spermidine to market. Initially, I thought I would just raise money, create a company that somebody else would run, and I would just raise money for it. But the more that I became involved with it, the more people wanted me to share my own story of reversing my biological age. I'm sure at age 39, when I was told, well, sorry, you, it looks like you're fighting cancer, but you're instead of fighting the cancer, you're actually trying to kill yourself. 
uh, you've got five years left. These numbers are so bad. We've never seen them so high. And it's obvious, Leslie, that the uh, to, to me from the outside, that the company needs you because of your passion in terms of what you're doing. And just to, just to hand it off to somebody else uh, probably would be a, would be a travesty that, uh, so it's interesting because <laughs> yeah. everybody was saying they want you to be the, uh, the, the spearhead for, uh, for that. And, and again, I take Primadine, your product from Oxford Health Span uh, every day. Oh, and, well, thank you. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And the other point I, I wanted to make was that, that you're covering is that um, uh, so many people just have this perspective that aging is just normal, that you, all these diseases of aging are what's going to happen. And that's just the way, that's just destiny. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's uh, really nothing further from the truth when you start really looking at the science and you look at biochemically what's going on and how there are ways that you can begin reversing uh, these hallmarks of aging uh, in a way that, you know, 10, you know, five, 10 years ago, nobody had any, any idea of it. Certainly 20 or 30 years ago, no, no way. But so it's it, to get that information out that there are um, mechanisms that, and they're not always simple, right? And they're it can be complicated and it's because everybody is different. Everybody responds differently to different modalities and, and different exercise protocols and all kinds of things that it's not just a cookie cutter, give, uh, give everybody the same template. You know, there's some basic overviews in terms of health, but it's complicated. We're all different. We all have different biologies. That's and right. It, it requires, uh, it requires, people that are providers like you, health coaches and, and functional medicine docs and, and people that are at the, at the forefront of, of studying these things to, to really um, help us to move forward because it's easy to get confused. I certainly confuse myself a lot in terms of and you can't, you can't do everything. There's lots of things and lots of choices and you have to be able to uh, have some uh, perspective and some understanding of what what the potential is and and also what the risks are in all these different different uh, uh, experimental so-called experimental modalities that haven't been proven with you know 30 years of uh, double blind placebo controlled testing but you can still see that there's effects that it's changing people's lives so it's very exciting in terms of what you're doing that's that's exactly right the thing about about a, a molecule like spermidine or a molecule like spermine is that they're in the food supply. In terms of safety studies, they've been in the food supply for hundreds of years. We get ours from highly concentrated wheat germ, but you could get them from shiitake mushrooms. You could get them from very mature cheddar cheese. You could get it from Japanese natto. You could get it from peas. Because it's everywhere, if we're eating processed food, we're not getting very much. But if we're eating fruit and vegetables, uh, if you're eating meat, really the place you get it is chicken liver, not really many other places. But it's, it's safe. And that really was appealing to me because when I was put on Enbrel and Humira, I was told, well, you're going to take these injections every day for the next 18 months. But unfortunately, in about 18 months, 
one, it's probably going to stop working for you. So we're going to need to cycle you onto some other immune suppressant. And I, I really mm. didn't like the idea of suppressing my immune system because instead of just trying to modulate my immune system, we were really trying to tamp it down. And I just knew that would not be good for me. And other other people who I had met on forums who were diagnosed at the same time as me, then were actually put on chemo drugs like methotrexate because all these immune suppressants, they stop working. So then you go on to these chemo drugs. This is, this is tough, tough medicine. And I just didn't think I could do that. I had also you know, spent a year of my life I took off from university to spend with my grandmother and watch her die at home with a brain tumor watched her go through chemotherapy. I just thought, I can't do this. I don't think I can do this to myself. So here we've got this compound that is absolutely safe, that seems to have a meaningful impact on these seven levers of aging. And there are only nine levers. What's not to love, right? Why not? And the proof is always in the pudding. What I think is so interesting is that, yes, there have been, there have been a lot of animal studies. There have been some clinical trials in humans on brain health and cognition that are very exciting, which indicate that spermidine and spermine support positive changes in the hippocampus where our memories are stored and retrieved, mm -hmm. uh, that it helps with subjective cognitive decline, that memories improved after only 90 days of, say, supplementation with a milligram, one milligram of spermidine, and that people are saying that they are experiencing improved sleep. These are things we know from the mouse trials that it helps reset the circadian rhythm in elderly mice. We don't have that yet in humans, but individuals are telling us that they're experiencing improved sleep, that they're seeing higher deep sleep scores on their aura rings, that it's helping them time shift. If they need to do studies, there's a, a lovely podcaster out of Spain named Zora Benamou, and she was doing a course with Walter Longo at the University of Southern California on Pacific Standard Time, even though she's in Europe, she had to time shift for three weeks doing his course, I think at midnight, and used spermidine for that. We knew that the epidemiological studies were showing that populations with high spermidine intake, such as the Okinawans in Japan and the, uh, the uh, populations in the Mediterranean, uh, in the parts of Italy and Greece that had high spermidine content in their diet were living longer. Um, and there was good evidence that it was supportive of heart health, that spermidine is preferentially taken up by cardiomyocytes, and may support heart health by inducing autophagy, mitophagy, and improvements in mitochondrial function, that it seemed to enhance the arteries, 
Um, by the way, cardiomyocytes are responsible for generating that contractile force in the heart for rhythmic beating. So that's why it's important. And we all want to have our hearts beat for longer, right? right. Um, when we're young, is fairly high. We have it produced in all of our tissues. We have it produced in our gut biome. And then we also get it from our food. So it's roughly a third from each of those three categories. But as we get older, just like with our hormones, uh, whether it's progesterone and estrogen, testosterone, est uh, or uh, say DHEA, pregnenolone, melatonin. They all just, decline. Yeah, they all decline, right? It's really not great. And we um, we know what it feels like to get a good night's sleep, but as we get older and our ability to produce melatonin declines, um, right? We just don't sleep as well. Well, what's so interesting is that our ability to produce spermidine also goes down, and that means that a very important function called autophagy, which is cellular renewal and recycling, and for which the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology was awarded to Yoshinori Osumi, a Japanese scientist, for discovering the mechanism of action. Spermidine triggers autophagy. And if we are not producing spermidine in our tissues and our gut biome as we get older, that cellular renewal and recycling process that goes on every single day doesn't happen and it's kind of like taking the garbage out if you don't take the garbage out on a regular basis your kitchen becomes a right mess and that's what autophagy does right and if we aren't doing that to our cells our cells become sluggish they don't function as well and so that's another reason why we need spermidine then more spermidine from our food intake or we need a way to increase the spermidine in our gut biome. If we can't find a way to do it in our tissues, then let's try our gut biome. So we put in a prebiotic, which is a fructooligosaccharide, and it selectively feeds two of the three bacterial colonies in the gut that manufacture it for us. So what we're trying to do is supplement with spermidine, but also get the gut biome manufacturing again. And of course, nothing will ever replace a good diet. All of us should be trying to eat things with more spermidine in them. And I have had people say, oh, that's wonderful. I love cheddar cheese. And I've had to say, well, you know, everything in moderation, right? Just like our mother said. Uh, don't go crazy on the cheddar cheese because it's also high in histamine content and uh, dairy is not great for everybody, especially if you've got the ApoE4 gene. Um, you know, if you've got, if you're heterozygous or homozygous for that, you don't want to be eating a ton of saturated animal fat. But try shiitake mushrooms. Try to get natto, which is fermented soybeans into your diet and it's not that and natto i will have to say is not that bad i have it do you, do you find it okay it's not that no yes i do it's it's uh, fine you put a little soy sauce and a little mustard on it and uh you know i have uh, lots of uh, 
packets of it in the in the freezer and uh, it's Bravo. it's definitely not uh, you know it's you know it's it's not the best tasting but it's not it's not terrible and it's uh, it's relatively painless right it's not too bad and it's it has the 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 benefits are huge again if you eat natto you're going to hit those seven levers right it's not too expensive either no, I urge everyone to try it, right? The yeah. experiment is not going to cost you a lot. If you hate it, okay, you hate it. Then you can supplement with it. If you love it, fantastic. Or if you can tolerate it, that's honestly the best thing. And just take a little bit of it every day. Try it with pickled ginger like you get with your sushi. Right. Or try it with chopped up spring onions. And as you say, soy sauce. It actually just anything to kind of get the sliminess and the smell it's it's very stringy it has this consistency that is a bit like spider webs right yeah. it's as if all those soybeans are covered in this unctuous this unctuous sauce that has strings like like spider webs but cheese does that too, right? If you're yeah. having fondue, you get strings too. So, um, yeah, you can get it at Asian markets. Uh, sometimes you can get it online frozen. Not not so easy though to, you know, you, you need to have it delivered uh, the same day. Yeah, but, but all, the, all the Asian markets have it. In, in the United States, I think quite a few do. Yeah. Here, 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 here. here in the UK, it's it's not so easy to find, <laughs> but I yeah. I hope that I hope that will change. Now let let me ask you this: when we were talking about autophagy, you know, another one of the uh, uh, promoters of autophagy obviously is fasting, intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. longer term fasting, and that's something I've dabbled with up to five days a couple of times. How do you think that spermidine would in, would uh, uh, supercharge uh, autophagy if you are fasting at the same time. Do you have any information on that yet? No, I sadly, I sadly don't. We actually uh, were part of a symposium here at Oxford University back in April, and we asked one of the world's foremost experts on autophagy, Hamatsu Yoshimori of the University of Osaka in Japan, what he thought about fasting versus supplementation. And he said that he felt that supplementation was the way to go, partly because, especially with elderly populations, compliance is hard, right? What do we tell an entire generation that grew up with, uh, you know, Twix bars and Chex Mix and, uh, you know, wheat thins and, and Oreos, what do we tell them? Oh, right, fast. It's, it is actually, it's a hard behavior to get to. And in addition, there is this issue of with women, as we get older, we stop producing thyroid hormone at the levels that we did when we were younger. A huge number of women become borderline hypothyroid. And if you starve a woman's body, well, if you, if you make the body think that it is going to be starved, 
what it does is says, oh, famine coming, stop metabolism, stop the engines burning calories, and it issues reverse T3, which is a hormone that sits on your T3 hormone receptor, and it blocks that. It blocks the T3, the T3 hormone, from actually getting attached in the cell to the receptor and getting your metabolism going. So quite ironically, you might fast as a woman, try a three-day fast or a two-day fast, and you might actually gain weight, especially if you do it more than once, because the body says, right, I remember this. This is famine. Uh, let's turn the metabolism down. There's a fellow at Johns Hopkins who actually said that he'd seen this in populations that had survived famines. So if you happen to be Irish and your ancestors were the ones that survived the potato famine, they probably had the ability to create reverse T3 and put the brakes on the metabolism so they still had enough fat to essentially hibernate and get through the period of famine. Because you can imagine during famine, you would not want to be burning calories because there'd be nothing to eat, right? So uh, fasting is great if you can do it. I personally can't. I can do 16-8 fasting where you eat within an eight-hour window. Right. I break my fast with bulletproof coffee. It's the only coffee I have in the day. I add uh, a little protein to it. The guys at the ketone lab here at the University of Oxford say it's so negligible, it's not going to take me out of ketosis. Uh, so my, right. my evening, my, my fast that I have while I'm sleeping, I mean, everybody fasts to a certain extent because we all sleep, right? When you're sleeping, you're fasting. And I extend that fast then with the coffee plus uh, some C8 or caprylic acid, which is a median chain triglyceride, which crosses the blood-brain barrier um, because your brain cells have receptors for ketones and glucose and lactate. And, you know, you can get those, get the C8 across the blood-brain barrier and get it to those receptors for energy so you can think. And, and the Bulletproof Coffee has amazing... Uh, gives you amazing energy for when you have it in the morning for four or five hours where you're really not hungry when you get those yeah. fats in. It's amazing. Yeah. I've been doing this for, I've been doing this since I was 49. And uh, I would urge some caution as you go into menopause. I think when I did it, I might have brought the menopause on a little bit early uh, just because I think I, that sense that I didn't have nutrients around, but uh, personally, I wanted the brain sharpness. And a lot of women going through menopause complain of brain fog, and this really does. The C8 really helps. If you can't tolerate yeah. the liquid C8, you can get the uh, the powdered version. It's a lot easier on the GI tract. So, Leslie, let me ask you to kind of summarize the effects that the, uh, and, and obviously in the show notes, we'll put the information about uh, the primidine, 
product that you're making at Oxford HealthSpan, so people can refer to that and how to contact you as well. Um, but if you could just kind of summarize the effects that you've seen that your clients that are using uh, Primity now. Well, in addition to the, you know, the brain health, the supporting brain health and cognition, supporting immunity, improved sleep, heart health, uh, it also helps normalize hormone health. It helps reduce cortisol in studies. Uh, it helps normalize DHEA and testosterone in men, progesterone and estradiol in women. And I think that one of the most profound effects is when people experience um, thicker hair, eyelashes returning or growing longer, eyebrows that were overplucked in the 90s coming back, and hair color coming back. And I had a, a very interesting conversation with a woman who's been on Primadine for the last four months who uh, sent a picture in and the hair, this woman is 79 years old and she had sort of dark blonde hair before. And at her roots, you can see that it's all coming back in her natural hair color. And wow. at the ends, it's all white. And I said, that's fantastic. And her 90-year-old husband said, look at this, this is amazing. Her hair color is coming back in its natural color. And she said, but everybody's going to think I'm dyeing my hair. And I said, <laughs> what's wrong with that? And she said, but then they'll think I'm vain. I thought, well, you know, you just can't please everybody. But I do think it's so interesting because the... Uh, the animal research showed that it boosts keratin production and prolongs the antigen or growth phase of hair follicles. Actually, that was in, in vitro with human hair follicles, that it, uh, it allows for the epithelial stems, it, mo it modulates, spermidine modulates human epithelial stem cell function in the hair follicle. And that stem cells in the hair follicle and the hair follicle is in the growth phase for longer. This is when melanogenesis or pigment gets made in the hair bulge. And so it's very nice to know that the customers who are using it are experiencing this and that it's not just what's going on under the hood, but they're noticing these benefits to hair as well as skin and nails going on too. Because I think that as we get older, one of the worst things is seeing ourselves on a Zoom call or looking in the mirror. You feel 25 and you look in the mirror and you think, who is that old, who is that old woman looking at me? <laughs> right? Present, That's not present me. Present company excluded. We don't do that. No, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we don't. We biohacked our way through it. But that, that is, I think that's what, what is really exciting as both you and I are past 50. This really is the new prime of life. And this is what I say you know, not to do with my company, just on my YouTube channel. This is the best time of life. We are comfortable in our own skins and we can really live our lives on our own terms now, right? We are not living the stories that our parents told us to live or that our teachers said we ought to live because we were good at this or that, or this was the only thing we could do. And I just want everyone, when they hit the new prime of life, 
to also know that they can be in good health through it. And I'd like to uh, throw in the what you have on your website about the Japanese word ikigai. Mm, yes, your purpose, your sense of purpose. Yeah. The term denoting how worth how worthwhile we determine our lives to be by uncovering and practicing the intersections of what we love to do, what we're good at, what we love to do, and what we be what we can be compensated for. In short, our life's purpose. That's right. That's right. Live your purpose. Live your purpose and your passion, and you'll find that you know your soul. Your soul begins to blossom and share your gifts. We each have, we each have gifts to share, and that makes life better for everyone else. But also, we grow, we grow and live better lives through that too. Absolutely, and you've been such a great example for people yes. in terms of of sharing your gifts and of being uh, uh, very persevering through all of these obstacles and challenges and going to the other side and living a successful life and building a successful family and a successful business in uh, on your terms versus uh, versus a, a Swiss bank's terms or Walt Disney's terms or any of those other big companies <laughs> terms you've done it on your own on your own so in wrapping up would you what advice would you give to young women that are just starting out deciding where to go in their lives what would you tell them well i would first say bear in mind that you are likely to live for a hundred years possibly 110 or 120. with that in mind yourself and remember that you need to invest not just in your financial and educational health but in your physical health don't ignore your physical health at the you know in order to benefit from financial health or education those are important they're not the be-all end-all we have to also start investing in our physical health especially as women put off their reproductive years it's very important to stay to stay healthy don't take your health for granted beautifully stated leslie i, I will i guess i will have to say i didn't know we were going to get this deep into the science but i guess i will have to state for our listeners that nothing you've heard has been can, should be construed as medical advice consult your doctor and uh, the the uh, content on the podcast is for information purposes only absolutely absolutely <laughs> and you know when i use patient i'm referring to myself uh, you know, in my own journey as an autoimmune survivor. But yeah, definitely always consult your, your medical practitioner. Uh, last question for you. What's in the future for Oxford HealthSpan? Do you have new products you're thinking about? What's, uh, where's it going? Yes, yes. We didn't even get into the Ishin Ho or the thousand-year-old medical scrolls from Japan. Um, one of our wonderful scientific advisors, Professor Dennis Noble, he's a professor, emeritus professor of physiology at the University of Oxford and a 
a member of the Royal Society, uh, was given a facsimile copy of a series of 30 1,000-year-old scrolls written by the court physician to the emperor of Japan in the late 10th century. And there are so many wonderful formulations in that that are written in the margins. It's like having Tom Riddle's Dark Arts book, but for ancient medical herbals. And we're planning on bringing some of those out as safe compounds that, like spermidine, also meaningfully move the levers uh, on the hallmarks of aging. We'll look forward to seeing those in the marketplace. That is awesome. And the, the, you know, the wisdom from both Japanese and, and Chinese culture uh, in terms of health is some, some unbelievable um, insights and, and, and therapies that they use that you know, for a long time was dis- discarded you know, by the Western world, but there's a lot in there that's, I'm sure, very, very valuable that we've missed in the past. I think that the synthesis of modern science validating these ancient recipes is really compelling. And I can't wait to talk to you about that next time. <laughs> we'll have to get on. We'll have to get on the horn and uh, and talk about what's next. Well, with that, in the future. with that, Leslie, we will do that. And I do want to thank you for sharing your time, your knowledge, and mostly your passion about life and the quality of uh, life for for those of us that are going to live uh, be around for a long, long time, and that quality of life is uh, nothing could be more important. You don't want to survive and be unhappy. You've got to survive and have a quality that says, hey, I'm glad I'm here. Exactly. Exactly. So so thank you very much for sharing that with us. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Of course, you are your friend and biohacker, fellow biohacker, an older biohacker. That's it. Mostly biohackers are like 30 years old. So it's very nice to have someone, you know, in the same generational band to talk to. Uh, It's been a real pleasure to spend time, more time with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Okay, guys, thank you for listening to today's episode with Leslie Kenny. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. If you'd like uh, more information about Leslie's work at Oxford HealthSpan, just uh, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com. And um, Leslie was kind enough to offer a discount to all of uh, my listeners. Just put in the discount code uh, DAN15, dan D-A-N-1-5, and you'll get a nice discount if you decide you want to give Primadine a try. Again, thanks for being with us today, and we'll see you on the next podcast.